man, we, we don't live in Friday Fielder's universe. They have to live in the reality of with me of uh, that's still monotonous and 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 synchronized and old school and and I I still have that grandson of a coach son of a coach mentality to me and that Japanese baseball influence and so yes we do a lot of creative and innovative things but at its root I'm very very reliant on repetition. Welcome to Ahead of the Curve. This is your host, Jonathan Gellner. Today's show features Cleveland Indians minor league infield instructor, Kai Correa. If you follow social media at all, then you know that Kai is one of the best infield coaches in the country, and he's also the founder of Hashtag Friday Fielders. On today's show, we go through what progressions he teaches, how they work defense in a team setting, and how to run practice indoors, which we all need this time of year. He also gives us his five things that we need to add to our infield practice that we don't practice enough. And just as a side note, we recorded this conversation earlier this fall, so when we're discussing group play and activities, keep in mind that Kai was still coaching in college and not with the Indians. Let's get right into the show, and I know you're going to love this conversation with Kai Correa. Coach Correa, thank you for joining us on Ahead of the Curve. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about your background and tell us how you got your start in coaching. Yeah, so uh, I grew up in Hilo, Hawaii, and uh, I was the grandson and son of uh, longtime coaches. I had uncles who coached and cousins who coached at various levels, be it youth and high school. And so I grew up around coaching, and so obviously you kind of get that itch. Children of firemen want to be firemen. Children of cops want to be cops. And children of coaches, sons of coaches, oftentimes, uh, if they have good experiences, want to be coaches. And, and that was the case for me. Went off to college and played division three baseball at the university of puget sound in tacoma washington and and uh had a great experience there and while i was there during some summers i uh i kind of accidentally stumbled into some summer coaching positions 15 16 and 18 u and and loved those and the original plan was law school my uh my former head coach there in college brian billings offered me a job to become his infield coach and recruiting guy halfway through my senior season. And, and I jumped to, to it, kind of went into it blind, not any, knowing any idea what it was going to be like to coach at the college level. But I just knew that that's what I wanted to do for a living and, and fell in love with it. And, and, and here, we are, uh, here we are eight seasons later. Okay, so let's, uh, let's hop into the, the practice segment. Now, I've, I've seen you and you've put out a ton of stuff on social media. You've given a lot of talks. And, and everything that, that I feel like you do is just innovative and, and really just really, really good. So talk to us about what you guys do in the fall. So what does a typical week look like for you? And where do you guys start? Like, what's your foundation? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. Um, so the funny thing is you talk about innovative and fun and stuff. And, and that's all I put out there because that's what people like. Um, and my guys always laugh and we always bring this up at practice, the infielders. They're like, man, we, we don't live in Friday fielders universe. Uh, like they have to, they have to live in the reality of with me of, uh, that's still monotonous and, and, and synchronized and old school. And, and I, I still have that grandson of a coach, son of a coach mentality to me and that Japanese baseball influence. And so, yes, we do a lot of creative and innovative things. But at its root, just starting from a fall, from both a team and an infield standpoint, I'm very, very reliant uh, on repetition and, and, and discipline and, and really rigid drills that are almost robotic out of the gate, nauseating, and things that seem rudimentary. But the modern 
high school player comes to college pretty ill prepared. You know, he plays a ton of travel ball. He might play on a different fall team to a club team to a high school team. And so the bulk of his baseball career over the last four or five years has been built around exposure and not necessarily things like cuts and relays or, or bunt coverages or, or base running, uh, these kind of nuanced things. And so from an infield-specific standpoint, out of the gates, we are really focusing on how do you catch the baseball? How do you field the baseball? Where do you exchange the baseball? How do you throw the baseball? And once I feel like we have a really, really firm foundation to stand upon, that's when the fun begins. But I'm not going to throw you into a creative, max effort, max speed, high-intensity game-like reactionary drill competition um, and expect you to be able to swim. You know, I I really want to equip guys with the tools and the different golf clubs to manage all the shots they're going to face and then uh, kind of go from there. And so all about the foundation out of the gates. So take us through what that looks like. Yeah, so um, right out of the gates in the fall, um, the first thing we're, we're, we're focusing on is catch play. And so we do a lot of catch play stuff and, and assign tasks and roles to both the thrower and the receiver at, uh, at every distance. Uh, we do that synchronized together. Guys are partnered up and they have a firm understanding of what each uh, drill is supposed to achieve. Essentially, what I've tried to design in things that are game-like um, and things that mirror game-like actions from three parts. Um, the catch or the containment, uh, which is something you do anytime a ball is thrown, hit uh, towards you, whether it's on the ground, on a line, or in the air. The exchange, part two, and you know the varying ways we exchange the baseball and the varying directions we have to exchange the baseball. And then, and then the throw itself. And, and uh, in terms of the slot, the timing, um, the arm path, and, and then the intent and accuracy. Those, that's kind of the start. We, we do a lot of uh, catch play stuff out of the gates and, and spend a decent amount of time on that just because being able to play catch is such the um, kind of pillar of, of playing defense. From there, we spend a lot of time on group catch, and I've talked a lot about this both ABC and other podcasts, and just the idea that in, in a game we rarely ever redirect the baseball in the direction where it comes from. And so tandem catch or partner catch promotes that a ton, and so I like putting us in groups um, so you're kind of working on catch play with a varying number of people at varying angles, just like how the ball is thrown around in the game. Uh, in addition to that, I like group catch because it only involves one ball. And so there's a game. And so lots of times when you have drills where you have six, seven, eight balls out there, uh, people can hide in the numbers and hide their failures uh, in the crowd where when you go into a drill where the group has to function as one organism and there's only one ball to take care of, uh, it makes the stakes feel higher. It makes errors feel more costly, just like they are in the game. After after catch play and kind of and after group catch play, I, would, I do a ton of dry work, uh, and that's just kind of the basic uh, posture and mechanics to, to fielding a ground ball and the variety of different hops, be it short and and rolling snakes and and long hops and high hops. And so we kind of talk about go through a dry work routine that promotes the varying glove movements, whether they're forward or backwards, uh, to contain the baseball. Um, and then kind of roll that back into the same exchange point we worked on catch play and then the same throwing position we worked on catch play. So those kind of groups tie together. From there, we spend a lot of time on what I call transition drills or, or footwork drills, uh, just helping to establish some rhythm, um, some direction, some momentum, um, have kind of inputting really distinct footwork patterns. And then from there, uh, we, we wrap days up with, with live reps, just a mass amount of ground balls from a hack, from a fungo guy, a fungo hitter from myself, a road, um, with a variety of different angles and throws, 
And essentially, how I break up the distribution of reps is uh, is pretty simple. The farther away we are from outside competition, the more uh, the percentage of reps um, is based in drills and, and technique. And then the closer we are to competition, the more that the, the base seems free-flowing and reactionary and game-like, and the more the larger percentage of time we spend just completing reps and the less time we do on drills. We use the drills more as warm-ups. Okay, I've got a couple of questions uh, regarding the last couple of things that you said. And and by the way, I'm glad that you mentioned the certain percentages because I feel like we want everything to be so game-like, but at the same time, we want to have a, a strong foundation of everything that we're working on. Is 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 that kind of what you're thinking as well? Yeah, yeah, and and it's kind of it's kind of weird because uh, the trend now in baseball is the concept that if we do things with maximum intent, um, that the body's going to the reorganize itself, right? That's we're seeing that in modern hitting training, where you know we're trying to smash the ball and 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 lift that uh, lift the ball in the air and swing hard, and we're trying to throw hard, and that I think holds true that intent style of learning. And that task-oriented learning holds true for hitting and, and pitching. But defense is such a different act to me. And I think that if I take a fielder and I purely just put him on a stopwatch or throw a Raider gun on him and I make him do the acts as hard as they possibly can, I don't know, know that he necessarily gets better in the right ways or at the same rate um, that you do when performing that for pitching and for hitting. And so my thought process is I eventually want to get to that point when we're focused around the, the stopwatch, when we're focused around the clock and, and, and going at a really fast clip. But I, I think the foundation has to be built first where we, you have really, really good baseline actions. And then we can go uh, to and promote versatility and athleticism and intent. I love it. So the drills that you mentioned earlier about your catch play and your group catch play and the dry work. Do you guys do those every day? Yeah, and we do them every way, every single day, just different varieties. So I prescribe a specific catch play routine, group catch play drill, and dry work routine, uh, both kneeling and standing from a week-to-week standpoint. So from a Monday through a Thursday, they'll do the same one, and then going into the next week, there'll be an alteration, whether it's there's a component that's now barehanded whether there's a component that now involves a training glove, uh, whether there's a component that, you know, involves a specific task post field where we're going to rhythm tap and double tap with our gloves or shuffle twice or shuffle once or don't shuffle at all, whether we're going to throw exclusively out of one arm slot for one drill. So those things I change from a week-to-week standpoint so that it still instills that discipline and that uniformity, but at the same time it creates versatility where after four weeks you've done one task four different ways. Let's say that I went to a new school and I tried to, and I was an infield coach. So how would I sell the kids on really just breaking it down to fundamentals of almost stuff that you do, you know, in little league, because I know high school kids are like, oh, that's, we're too cool for stuff like that, which, you know, handle it however you want. But it sounds like you've got these kids completely bought into doing the boring stuff every single day. And now how did, how did you get to that point? Uh, I think it's, uh, it's coming from like an elite fielder legitimacy, right? Everything that I've kind of developed is centered around elite fielders that we see at the college level on film of elite professional fielders. And so I try to explain it in a way on that that's not overly wordy, that's not overly technique driven. I try to try to name the drills and name the tasks 
after good fielders. And so it kind of has that, that professional ethos that, hey, this is a move that Arenado does. This is a move that, that Vizquel does. This is a move that Jeter did. And, and, and we're trying to promote that move. And I think from there, the modern athlete has that buy-in. And I think the other way I explain this thing is these um, breaking it down is that these guys have spent hundreds and thousands of dollars in their life getting hitting and pitching lessons where they did front toss and T work and and weird drills and uh, and breakdowns. And they only practice defense from a rep standpoint. And so I'm kind of selling it as like almost like the private lesson model uh, for development of infielders. I'm all in on that. I know that if you mentioned if you mentioned a Jeter play, and I know that's not your basic fundamental play, but just by naming it the Jeter play, everybody's like, man, I, well, I, I'm all in on that. So that's cool. Yeah. And, and it reminds them of the functionality, right? Like that's the thing is if you just say, hey, guys, we're going to go out here and study calculus. And then someone asks you, how the hell am I going to use this in my life when I'm 40? That's tough, right? right? But if I say, hey, we're going to get on our knees and we're going to work on this specific glove move. And in the game, you're going to encounter X amount of hops that are like this. Okay, that seems more practical, right? Um, the other thing is I have no problem pointing out my guy's flaws, like reminding them that um, they were imperfect when they walked in the door, that fielding percentage is one of the things that is drastically different from professional to college, from college to high school, and from high school to youth league. Like, you know, that's something that you do at a 750 clip, an 800 clip, a 900 clip, all the way, you know, it's a far road to 980. To 975 to 970 and so i have no problem reminding them of how many holes there are uh in their game especially a lot of them that relied on their athleticism and so you know it's just part of the process to me well switching gears a little bit and something that i like to really integrate or try to integrate almost every practice and that's some sort of competition whether it be punishment at the end for with like one push-up or just something simple as just just trying to get them to compete and anything really so how do we get our kids more competitive from an infield side do you have any drills or do you just have any practical ways to do that for me i, I do it from an individual standpoint in just terms of sheer intensity in pace in terms of the pace and the fact that i'm loud i'm in your face that i point out every little mistake and every little success and so i try to foster a really, really intense and competitive infield, daily infield practice environment just by holding people to, you know, unfairly high standards, right? So that's that's one major thing uh, in terms of, of, of integrating competition is that I want them to be in competition with themselves to be perfect, right? The only way we're going to field at a really high clip and win games is if we don't say, oh, 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 well, that was a bad hop. Oh, gosh, I just let that one slip. Oh, oops, I just dropped the exchange. It was just that one time. Right. And I, I try to remind guys that one time, right, I, you may get four, 500 reps today and you might miss five and feel good about that clip, but you might get five in the game. And what if there's those are the five out of the 500 you missed today? Right. And so I, I think that the game like intensity is an important part in that. And I know that doesn't necessarily answer your question, but it's an important piece to me because I'm always careful about how much I need competition because that tells me I'm coaching the wrong guys. Right. If I need to if I need to have a carrot, you know, or, or, or a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, that scares me. I think I want the desire to be good, to be enough to drive you to be competitive in practice. In terms of the actual competition, going back to your original question, I think you should you can assign points to things really easily. Right. It's 
It's a point for a clean catch. It's a point for a clean exchange. It's a point for an accurate throw. It's a point three point play. It's a point, you know, two points if you do it less than 3.9 seconds. It's one point if it's under 4.2. It's no points if it's under 4.3. It's minus one point if it's 4.3 to 4.5. You know, I think having a creative scoring system and breaking down different components of in each of the components of the infield play is a really, really fun way um, that an amateur fielder can start learning the value of each parts of, of the defensive practice. Awesome. So just as you're going through that, I'm thinking of, or I'm just imagining an infield the entire time. And, and so for our listeners out there who want to, who, who get past the dry reps and the dry runs and they want to put them out on the team in their position. So how does each position get a ton of reps? Um, yeah, that's, that's simple to me. I, uh, I, I think that, we should always avoid the single fungal hitter going around the diamond and having that downtime. I think you can manage rep quantity by uh, assigning other tasks to other positions. So let's say if I'm striking ground balls to the shortstop and uh, I can have him be assigned to both field and flip to the second baseman, I can have the second baseman be assigned to working on his footwork around the bag but just getting to the power position without making throws. I can have a ball... Um, out there with the third baseman and they can be working on catching and tagging you know theoretical throws from from the outfield uh both you know long hop short hops throws on the fly deking like the ball's not coming and tagging late um, meanwhile can have an extra ball out there with the uh the first baseman and they can work on stretching and picking from different angles right and i can bang through in a whole bucket like that then shift gears then i can hit to the the third baseman and they can be firing across to the first baseman so the third baseman's task is field and throw the first baseman tasks task is uh, stretching and catching from there the second baseman and the shortstop can be working together on uh, on catching and tagging throwing balls together as if they're throwdowns from the catcher from behind the mound or uh, they can be working on potential relay throws where they toss the ball in the air and they work on you know catching at the right spot and exchanging the baseball quickly and and, and setting their feet to different bases so I think that's a really big key to maximizing reps is make sure, you know, that you're not hitting to more. I try not to hit to more, have one fungal hitter machine hit or feed to more than two position groups at a time. And I want the other two position groups to either be with an additional fungal hitter or be off on their own uh, uh, handling a task and then just move those around the diamond. So in each of those, you mentioned a uh, tag component, and I, I know that I, I used to teach infield, or I used to coach infield, but that's something that I probably didn't do enough. Is that something that you try and uh, work on a lot? Yeah, I, there's a couple plays that I feel like we don't do enough, right? So the first thing is I think the average infield practice, eh, if you look at it, it probably involves some picks, and so, but they only do short hops. They don't do multiple hops. And then in addition to that, it probably involves some ground balls. In actuality, infielders, they acquire outs in so many different ways um, throughout the course of the game. In fact, like at the major league level, I think they catch an infield fly ball for every four, something like every four ground balls they get. But there's no way we hit fly balls at that same rate to our guys. So the tasks that I like to include every single day in practice are some element of stretching and catching, regardless of position, some element of stretching and picking, regardless of position, some element of catching infield fly balls, um, going back on fly balls some element of picking and tagging, and then some element of redirection. So catching a ball and then redirecting in a new direction. And so I try to do all of those in addition to fielding uh, ground balls uh, on a daily basis. That's something that I probably did a disservice to uh, to my kids that 
that I was teaching before. So you're really stretching my stretching my infield mind. So I really appreciate that. That's awesome. No problem. Yeah, I think I mean I, I did the same, and I think there's so many guys out there that just think infield practice is banging ground balls, and that you know all of a sudden. There's a man on first base, somebody bumps the ball right in, the, in front of the plate and he fires to the second base and the shortstop's not, he's stretching with the wrong foot and he comes in the dugout and you're yelling at him, hey, you know, why can't you, what are you doing? Why are you using the wrong foot? Why didn't you stretch right? This, that, and the other. And you don't realize, hey, I never asked you to do that in a praxis format. No, that's good. That's, uh, I'm sure I'm guilty of that as well. And, and if we can't, if we haven't taught it in a practice, we can't expect them to do it in a game. Now that's great. Not by any means. So talk to us about, and this is a question that, that I ask a lot. It's a question that always comes up whenever you're talking to other coaches. So what do you guys do for team building or leadership building activities? Yeah, um, in terms of leadership specifically, um, that's a really, really important thing for me in the infield. You know, I, I think that the old school baseball thought process and, and catching guys won't like me saying this was that catchers are you know the captain of the defense and they call things out but that's changed drastically with people calling pitches for catchers and and just kind of the role of the catcher uh, in general and so i think that anybody who stands in the middle of the diamond can can have a leadership role and it's just based on baseball iq and assertiveness and 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 age and so i really really want to empower my old guys to provide input 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 on the drills input on the practice planning so one thing I do in terms of leadership standpoint, I partner the old with the young. So when we're doing catch play, when we're doing picks, when we're doing footwork patterns, it's always an old guy and a young guy or an old guy and a new guy, a veteran, a returnee and a new guy, right? And, and they're, they're constantly kind of giving each other feedback throughout the course of the drill. Um, in addition to that, I, I kind of talk one-on-one with my returning infielders on a weekly basis and kind of say, hey, how'd you feel about the new drills? How'd you feel about the old drills? Are guys getting it? Are, are, you know, are, are people getting worse? Because we have to admit it, coaches, that sometimes you can have a drill, you could have a cue that makes three of your infielders better and one of your guys worse. And so, I, and they're not willing to tell that, especially if I'm 18 years old. I'm not going to tell that to the coach, right? I might, but I might kind of whisper that in the ear of the other first baseman, like, "Hey, I'm really confused. What's going on?" And um, so, I kind of want to have that constant dialogue, um, and I think that be, builds leadership and it also builds ownership, where they uh, they're the ones you won't have guys kind of complaining about a drill or misunderstanding a cue if they're your your important infielders are the one who's asked for it that's what kind of what i try to do i really want to empower the older infielders who've been through the cycle of drills and the cycle of cues to pick the ones they like the most and provide me feedback when they think that something's working or not working and you got to be realistic enough as a coach to take that input and not as a criticism to your ability we have to be more versatile um, and we have to be willing to hear what they're saying and, and c- come up with something new to get the same result um, because we don't coach to be good at drill design we coach to to be good at player development and eventually win games and so if my drill isn't working uh, i have to acknowledge that i'm going to take a loss if i'm unwilling to change that Oh, that's perfect. I know that, that we get a lot more buy-in when we explain what we're doing, and it sounds like you do a great job of that. Yeah, I, I mean, gosh, that's the one thing. I got a lot of old school in me, uh, but call you can call me new agey or millennial when, when it comes to the fact that I have no problem having that you know that dialogue with my guys. And, and I think that if you're, if you're not willing to have a dialogue with your players on why you're doing something, you probably need to look pretty hard in the mirror to th- see if – is that – is that a weakness? Are, are you afraid that what you're doing is just something you're comfortable with and it might not be right or the best? Okay, so we, we went through the fall. 
Well, actually, I want to know, what do you guys do whenever it snows outside? How do you guys get infield work in, indoors? I, I used to work with a guy at an indoor facility, and thankfully, I'm from Hilo, so it's one of the rainiest cities in the Western Hemisphere, right? And then I, uh, I, I lived in the Seattle area for, Seattle-Tacoma area for nine years, so places with heavy precipitation. I, uh, I've, done a, I've got a lot of indoor time in my background, and so that's where that creativity comes in. And infield is something you can improve really in a s- small space. Right. I used to work with a guy in indoor facilities says, hey, you can teach infielders in the back of a van. Right. And, and, and when you take away throws, you can do basically everything else an infielder does, you know, inside the space of, you know, four phone booths. Not much changes because we um, we have such a uh, I have I'm, I'm such a strong believer in the foundation of the moves, the catch, the contain, the field, the exchange, the throwing position. I think you can do those all in an indoor. And I think one of the biggest problems that a lot of people have in indoors is they say, hey, you know, if you can't make field a full length ground ball and you can't make a full length throw, you're not getting better. And I don't agree. First of all, I think a shorter distance ground ball is more difficult and better training for a full length ground ball because you're shortening the reaction time and you're, you're speeding up the decision making process. In addition to that, the lack of the full length throw or the lack of the throw at all um, shouldn't be a reason that you become poor at the throw. I think the exchange your footwork post field and the power position have as much to do with the throw as the throw itself, uh, especially in terms of its accuracy. And so I think one beef I have with a lot of folks is that they allow guys to field ground balls on non throwing reps, whether it's in an indoor in a confined space and they just stand up straight. They let them go erect. They let them drop the ball in the bucket. And then later on, they claim that those reps weren't valuable. Just because you're indoors doesn't mean you can't police um, the quality of rep and the quality of moves your athletes make post-field. And so that's something we really harp on, and that's something how we take advantage of our, what we use to take advantage of our space. So what's the first thing you guys start with and then take us through the spring? Do you guys change anything, or does most everything stay the same? So we try to dive right back into um, the drill work, but we just kind of go at a faster clip. Just the idea that, hey, we're going to still do dry work, catch, play, and footwork every day. But instead of taking 15 minutes, let's have it take seven minutes. Let's have it take eight minutes total. And as the spring evolves, uh, as I stated earlier, the closer we are to competition, the more we're doing reps, the less we're doing drills. As we go into spring, it's a pretty massive distribution of drills. And I just, you know, it depends if we're playing on the road or at home. But I want to make sure my guys get everything they need in terms of receiving throws down, catching fly balls exchanging baseballs and then taking a ton of ground balls both of the forehand the backhand the conventional and the slow roller variety and then uh, making throws to to the different bases so that's kind of what the spring looks like the spring is a lot more uh game like reps and then sprinkled into the spring is i try to have I, i try to do something that's a little bit more fun here and there whether that's a game or a competition play some turf tennis do you know do a pop fly day where you got to catch three consecutive mammoth hack attack fly balls in a row you know at the same time things like that just try to loosen it up just remembering that those games are pretty intense days both physically and mentally and so i want those days in between to be both instructive but refreshing so i forgot to ask this earlier how much time do you guys use for catch play group catch and then your basic fundamentals whenever whenever you guys are starting so um, on a given day, uh, we allot somewhere between 45 minutes and an hour of practice time, team practice time to individual defense. So the catch play, dry work, footwork all happens in that. So I'd say at the start of fall, 
you're probably looking at 20 to 25 minutes of that time um, built around the drills, around the catch play, around the group catch, and around the footwork. And then probably 20 to 25 minutes of that time built around reps. Uh, as we get into the spring, you're probably looking at more only of 10 to 15 minutes worth of drills. And then you guys will go into uh, like your team setting drills? Yes. Um, so every day in terms of basic practice design, uh, post-stretch, there's some element of individual defense. Then there's some element of team defense. Then there's some element of team offense and then uh, mass hitting, bullpens, things like that. And then into finishing up with some base running element. And I, just so I can get this get this right in my mind, you're talking about like cuts and relays would be like one team element and first and third defense would be like one team element, things like that. Yeah. And so I have like a drill bank basically uh, for both individual defense and team defense. And I just kind of make sure I hit into them. So cuts and relays, tandem cuts, uh, pop fly communication, bunt defense, uh, first and third defense, holding runners at second, PFPs, picks, rundowns. All of those things kind of go into one box, and then I try to hit each of them once a week, once every two weeks. Uh, again, with the modern athlete, uh, in terms of attention span, I try not to do the lengthy, drawn-out team defensive sessions, the old school, hey, we're going to have to make 27 outs in a row here. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not realistic. In the game, if you make an error in the first, the game doesn't restart. you got to move on. You know, and, and I try to have my drills not be like that. In terms of instilling competition, uh, you had asked me about that earlier. I think I, I like doing that more in team defense than I do in individual defense, right? I, I, like I said, I want you to be competitive as an individual already. I don't have to use points to get that out of you. But in terms of team defense, I think we do that really slow paces and overly explanatory ways. And so I want that to happen fast. So instead of having pitchers run the bases and somebody put down bunts, we actually have a team bunting whose objective is to advance people 90 feet. And we have a team out there on defense trying to object trying to complete our, our bunt place. And so we definitely try to do all those team defensive elements against a live offense. So something you mentioned earlier and something that I, I do a terrible job of is holding runners at second. So can you help us out and give us some hacks with that? In terms of some hacks for holding runners at second, I think if you start think, looking at how you hold runners at second with the idea that all you were trying to do is prevent them from stealing third, you're better off. I think people who try to look at holding runners at second as a way to acquire outs and pick people off are, are, are looking at something that happens at a very small percentage of time. Really, our goal is just to stop the running game. And so I think the idea is that you should design a system where both your infielders and your pitcher, pitchers are accountable for stopping momentum. And as long as the, they're comfortable with the distance the runner is from second base and the momentum or lack thereof that he has, I think the pitch can be delivered. And so I think the pitcher's safeguard should be the inside move and I, or stepping off, and I think the infielder's safeguard should be flashing to the bag. And if you have two people, both the infielder assigned to the bag for that for that at bat and the pitcher, taking care of their responsibilities as kind of both as a safety valve for each other, I think that should be more than more than serviceable enough uh, way to hold runners at second. Perfect. Well, thank you for that, and I appreciate you going into some detail about that because I know that I. Do not have a very easy time doing that. And it's and it's tough to get kids to buy in to, to do that stuff. Yeah, I mean, because this is what I thought. I, you know, I grew up in the style of baseball. Here, here, this, here's the no-look pick. Here's the two-look pick. Here's the timing play. Here's the daylight, right? And, and then we use these like once every eight games, right? right. <laughs> once in blue, and they work once every season. So it's like, was that 20 minutes every Tuesday 
for a whole year worth that one time? I don't know. You know, and some will argue, what if it was in a big situation? And my argument is the more important role is not letting that guy steal third base, right? And so if I can spend five minutes a week making sure that me and the pitcher are synced up to not allow the guy to steal third, that's something that I'm not going to do once a series. I'm going to do that once an inning, you know, once every every three innings. That's something that I'm not going to do once a season. It's something I'm going to end up doing hundreds of times throughout a course of 55 games. And so that's, to me, a more practical way to spend your time. Um, and like you and I have talked about before, I do not want to practice anything at the rate, at the same proportion that it doesn't occur in the game. Sure. What's something that you once thought was an absolute or once thought was true, but you may have recently changed your mind about? Yeah, I, uh, a million different things. Um, but I think the easiest thing to, to, to say, because I think there's still guys out there that believe this, I, I believe three things that I now uh, would slap myself for. The first thing is that I thought every ball should be exclusively pressed through, played forward through with positive glove action when fielding a ground ball. The second thing is that I thought that you should never glove tap, um, that you should, you, you know, the taste takes up too much time. And the third thing I thought is that every throw should be deflected for the fastest exchange possible. And gosh, those things have blown up in my face. Um, the press through thing, I, I realized, thankfully, you know, just from watching, uh, gameplay and I'm and I was watching and counting the distribution of errors and I was noticing that my guys were clanking balls on non-short hops and it didn't make sense to me I'm like that ball's rolling on the ground or that ball's chest high why are we not catching that and I realized that every drill I'd done and every cue and every instruction for the entire season used to revolve on moving your glove forward and on those plays the glove didn't need to move forward so they didn't know what to do and so that's when it dawned on me and I started watching film and I'm like gosh there is a lot of a lot of funnel. There is a lot of negative glove action that goes on when fielding the ball. And so I realized, gosh, a good infielder, he's got to be able to do both. He's got to be able to match plane with his glove, both forward and backwards. Uh, in terms of the glove tap, that bubble got burst for me, A, because it's one of those things that almost every pro does. So you're like, God, why am I saying you can't do that? Like it's, you know, it's, it's like uh, illegal and banned in the united states why am i so hard about the glove tap when every big leaguer is doing it why does it make sense and and people would say oh they do it because guys don't run hard 90s oh they do it because oh they have superior arm strength and those things are are wrong because when i time 90s in major league baseball if you move a guy to your right or your left guys are hauling butt down the line you get some pretty quick times home to first the other thing is i saw guys glove tap on jump throws and diving plays so it told me it wasn't something when they, they did when they thought they had a ton of time and then the last thing is that um i i started noticing that when i forced guys into two-step alignments to get rid of the ball right away without the glove tap we'd make more throwing errors and then i started noticing that throwing errors are made at such a less smaller rate at the professional level and it's because the glove tap the, the hand pump helps guys to stay in rhythm you know and so that's how that bubble got bursted and then the last thing deflection um is something i taught exclusively and uh, a buddy of mine billy boyer is now the volunteer assistant at seattle u um he and i had lengthy conversations about this over a course of years and 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 essentially, uh, I bought in because ball security is so important. And the fact that you can move a ball with one hand faster than you can move a ball with two, it proved to me that it was both better in terms of efficiency and better in terms of speed. And that's something that Marty Lisa always told me. He said, hey, when you're an infield coach, if someone says they can do something more efficient or faster 
you have to be bought in. There's just no argument with efficient and fast. And I think that the idea of exclusively deflecting uh, got that bubble got bursted when I realized that. And so those are the three primary things uh, for a two to three year span, uh, two year span where I exclusively thought taught uh, that I've got away from. Yeah, well, I, I, I can't argue with those and also can't argue with uh, Marty Lee's about too much about infield play either. This is true. So is there maybe somewhere online that, let's say, ex-coach wants to go find a ton of ton of fielding video? Is there maybe a certain hashtag that comes out on a certain day on a couple <laughs> of social media platforms that, uh, that they could go find? Yeah, yep, absolutely. Um, as you're implying, um, we, we got the Friday fielders thing going on strong, and that's just not me. That's a lot of contributors, and that's how I love it because people disagree and post contradictory things, and you can kind of make decisions for yourself. But um, if you search hashtag Friday Filters on Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, um, there's a ton of content, two years worth of content actually now, uh, of videos and clips and stale frames. And, um, and you can sort through that for yourself. That's, uh, that's kind of a huge database of information. So is there anything else you'd, that you'd like to tell our listeners before you go? Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing is sometimes when you come on here and you get to spew your thoughts on something, uh, people can get the wrong idea that you uh, you think you got it all figured out. And I want to make sure people know that if I did a podcast two years from today, odds are I probably contradict some things I said in the, the last 55 minutes. Um, and, and I think that that's the biggest thing is, is as long as you go about your craft knowing that you're probably screwing up in some capacity, then you're probably going to be getting better. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. I would love to get in contact with you to hear your thoughts on the podcast. There are two easy ways to do that. You can email me at jgellner7 at gmail.com or find me on Twitter at AOTC underscore podcast. Also, do you like to share ideas and have conversations with other baseball coaches? Just go to facebook.com and search Ahead of the Curve Coaches to join our group. It's free, so what have you got to lose? If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider leaving a rating so others can find the show. Thanks for listening and have a great week.